Do you wonder how the ancient truth of the Bible intersects with today's news? Do you believe in God's promises to the people and the land of Israel? Welcome to the Lone Star Podcast, a weekly conversation to expand your mind and encourage your soul. Our hosts live in the two Lone Star states, Rabbi Dove Lipman in Israel and Pastor Trey Graham in Texas. This podcast is your opportunity to learn the truth about the God of Israel from two people who love Israel. Please follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new weekly episodes are ready. You ready to be encouraged? Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham. We do welcome you to this week's podcast. It's always a privilege as friends to study the Word of God together. This is Pastor Trey Graham in the great state of Texas, joined by my friend Rabbi Dove Lippman at his home in Bet Shemesh in the land of Israel. Rabbi, hello, my friend. How are things in the land of Israel? Thank God uh, we're doing well. It's a strange time where eyes are both to the north and to the south in terms of some external challenges, but that's something which Israel has been exposed to before, and uh, leadership is navigating that. The army is ready, and people are living their lives and enjoying their summer. We will get into this week's Torah portion from the book of Deuteronomy in a moment, but there is a news story happening in the land of Israel that might not get much attention here in the States, but for those who love the Bible and love the land of Israel, it's something that I want us to take a couple of minutes and talk about. It is called the Nation-State Bill. It is a potential law, or now a newly signed law, that was debated in the Parliament of Israel called the Knesset, where you formerly served, and the idea is to formally entrench in Israeli law that the land of Israel, the modern state of Israel, is a Jewish state. Now that might seem unnecessary for those of us who believe in that and understand the eternal covenant of God, but take us, Rabbi, and former member of Knesset Lippman, back to the beginning of this debate, and then we'll talk about how it ended up. Uh, I can understand why it would be confusing to many. When Israel was declared in May 1948, David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister, stood there and declared a Jewish state. He made it very clear that his words are used in the Declaration of Independence. And as a Jewish state, it also says there in the Declaration that gives full equality and rights to minorities. In other words, there's going to be a Jewish majority. It's a Jewish state. But a core value in Judaism is that all people are created in God's image. It's right there at the beginning of the Bible, as you know, Pastor. And... As a result, uh, it it stated outright that there's that kind of equality. And there was no real need for a law of any kind. Uh, A law was passed some years ago called the Law of um, Basically Rights of Humans, uh, Basic Rights that People Have in Israel. And that law has been used by the Supreme Court in many cases where people were asking for their rights, and legitimately so, that's the law. But over time, it started actually impacting the Jewish nature of the state because judges, while they know the Declaration of Independence says that Israel is a Jewish state, there was no legal document anywhere that said it in that way. So when they're looking at, we don't have a constitution in Israel. All we have are constitutional laws that one day will be used for a constitution. So when you're a justice on the Supreme Court, and you have a case that comes before you where it's a question of human rights, basic human rights, uh, and it might be in conflict with the value and the goal of a Jewish state, the judges had to choose the human rights. And over time, whether it came to issues of 
cities or came issues to uh, refugees coming to Israel or many other issues, there were the Jewish nature of the state wasn't codified in law and it was impacting some of those decisions. So the Knesset decided that they have to pass a law that puts in a Jewish state law that, that balances the human rights, which of course we believe in, but always also a law that makes sure the justices preserve the notion of a Jewish state. So that was the goal that was set out in writing and passing legislation, uh, reinforcing in law that Israel is a Jewish state. I'm going to get you to continue the commentary in a moment, but I'll remind our listeners of a few things. The modern state of Israel was founded May 14th of 1948. We are celebrating this year the 70th year of the founding of the state, the only Jewish state on the map. And the population of Israel now is just over 8 million people, approximately 75% Jewish, 25% not Jewish. If you say 75% Jewish, maybe 20% Arab and 5% other. There's some Druze, there's some Christians, there's some other smaller subgroups within that. And one of the subgroups is the Druze, and D-R-U-Z-E is how you spell it. It's fairly unfamiliar to most Americans because it is a small subgroup of people only in the Middle East. There's some in Syria and Lebanon and and of course in Israel. And so the Druze, who have been very loyal to the Israeli government, served very nobly and courageously in the Israeli Defense Force. The Druze community and the Arab community, who are native-born Israelis and citizens of the country, have felt like this law looks down on them or diminishes their status. So I ask you, as the Jewish Israeli, do you agree? Do they have a valid argument? I do believe that the, the, there are a few things in the nation-state law that do give them a legitimate argument, and I side with them uh, on this. Uh, they had no problem. This is very important. The Druze, as you described them so well, they recognize that they are living in a Jewish state. They have all said they would stand proudly with a Jewish state law that codifies that is a Jewish state. They accept the flag. They accept the national anthem, which talks about the Jewish soul. Uh, they accept all of that. There were a few things in the law which hurt them. Uh, primarily, one uh, line which took Arabic from being a primary language, as it was since the beginning of the country, and relegating it to a secondary language. And that for them, with mother, their mother tongue is Arabic. Like you said, these are people who are loyal, they serve in the army. A very high percentage have actually lost their lives in the army. Over 400 have lost their lives in the army and police fighting for Israel. And here, for no reason really, it feels the Knesset uh, passed a law which said that they, their language is secondary. And that was one thing which hurt them, and I do agree with them. That there was no need for that. I agree there was a need for the law. There was no need to address the issue of the language. Uh, number two, there's a line in the law which says that the state will uh, put uh, attention to Jewish settlement uh, in Israel. And while, I'm, of course, I'm in favor of Jewish settlement, you have groups of people who are loyal to the state and serve for the state. Why should they not be mentioned as people who get settlement in a Jewish state? The law would have had the same impact without those two lines, and it hurt the Druze community, 
which is entirely loyal to Israel. There are also Israeli Arabs uh, who are also loyal to the country, uh, perhaps not with the same fervor as the Druze. Uh, there are Christians. And I, I do believe, while I understand what the prime minister and the Knesset were trying to accomplish, uh, I do think it was a mistake, and I do hope that they fix it. So if you were still in the Knesset at the time, what would you have argued or what amendment would you have s- submitted to improve the law in your opinion? Benny Begin, who's a member of Knesset in the Likud party, the son of the late Menachem Begin, who was a great prime minister of Israel, he submitted a law which basically took the, the language of the Declaration of Independence and put it into a law. And that would have accomplished the goal because that would have made it very clear that it's a Jewish state. It would have acknowledged the rights of the minorities. It would have not done anything in terms of the Arabic. And everyone uh, would have been happy with that, except for extremists who are never accepting a Jewish state. And that's, that's one model. If they wanted to use the specific law they have now, I would have said, there's no reason to talk about the language. There's really no reason. Uh, you know, we can argue and debate, should they have made Arabic an official language from the beginning of the state? But once it was made so, uh, I do believe it was a mistake to slap loyal uh, uh, people who speak Arabic in the face by downgrading it. And I also think that there was no need to specifically highlight Jews in terms of the settlement issue, in terms of uh, what seems to be priority. Uh, Again, people who are loyal to the state, you could say those who serve in the army, those who serve in the military, I'd be totally fine with that. And that would include those minorities who do that. But once you say Jew versus not Jew, uh, that's a line that I would have changed as well. And I guess my last question on this topic, as a Jewish-Israeli, former member of the Knesset, an ordained rabbi, please remind all of our listeners, especially our American Christian listeners, that everyone in the land of Israel has freedom of worship. And that's something which should not be lost. And I'm happy you pointed out, Pastor, in the conversation. Nothing in this law changed the status in Israel, where it's the only country in the Middle East where anyone can worship however they choose. Certainly Jew, Christian, Muslim, but many other faiths as well. Uh, There's complete freedom of worship, and no one has any plans at all uh, of changing that. The Druze are still loyal uh, to Israel, and every other minority that flourishes here. I'll tell you, even Israeli Arabs who might not be so supportive of Israel live more freely in Israel than any other country in the Middle East. Women uh, have have free rights. They have opportunities here uh, for education, and they're living in a flourishing startup nation. So it's very important to always, when we have this conversation, emphasize that those realities have not and will not ever change. So to wrap this up, do you think this new law will stay as is or will be amended? The prime minister seems pretty clear that he's keeping the law the way it is. There does seem to be a movement to try to pass some kind of legislation giving the Druze and any group that's loyal to Israel a special status. Uh, I don't believe that there's a plan to change the law. There's apparently going to be a massive demonstration led by the Druze community on Saturday night, and they're calling other people to join them. Will that have an impact? I I don't know, uh, but my sense is that the law won't change. Let's now turn our attention to the weekly Torah portion called in Hebrew the Parashah. Jews for thousands of years have gathered on Shabbat in the synagogue to study the same portion of what we as Christians would call the Old Testament or the books of Moses. This week's portion comes from Deuteronomy chapter 7. 
begins in chapter 7, verse 12, and goes through chapter 11, verse 25. So chapters 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 of Deuteronomy. And in Hebrew, the name of this portion is Ekev, and that means if you follow in Hebrew, or if you keep, and that's the the first couple of words there in Deuteronomy 7, verse 11. And it's really a summary statement that you should listen to the Lord your God, verse 12, to keep his commandments and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you his covenant and his loving kindness, which he swore to your forefathers. So, Rabbi, I think we need to be reminded that God makes covenants. God does not break covenant, but we can forfeit our experience or the blessing of the covenant by our disobedience. This is a major theme uh, in this week's portion, uh, very uh, significant, where Moses is talking about reward and punishment. And he makes it clear to the people that God will always be true to his word, but we have to be true to ours. And it's repeated in many different ways. Certainly in the beginning, it talks about all the blessings that will come to you, uh, really unbelievable things in terms of success, physical success, spiritual success, um, fending off your enemies, uh, and it's it's constant uh, constant refrain uh, that we find in this week's portion. And if the people would be faithful and obedient, the Lord promised blessing. It says in verse 13 of Deuteronomy 7, He will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain, your new wine, your oil, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock and the land which he swore to your forefathers to give you, you shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall be no male or female barren among you or your cattle. The Lord will remove from you all sickness. He will not put on you any of the harmful diseases of Egypt, which you have known. He will lay them on those who hate you. You shall consume or defeat all the peoples whom the Lord your God will deliver to you. Your eye will not pity them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. Unfortunately, Rabbi, we are not motivated in our sinful humanity by the call of blessing as much as we are motivated by the removal of punishment. There's no doubt that many live with that, I, I don't want to call it fear, but certainly it's, it's, it's the desire not to suffer uh, for the wrongdoings and certainly making sure that God protects us from the bad things that can happen. That's why it's so powerful that both are emphasized here and actually starts uh, with the positive of God, God will bless you know, everything that you listed over here. Uh, the positives coming first. Um, and then the negatives. But uh, I think that Moses is trying to get the people to focus uh, even more on, on the positives. It always starts with the positives uh, when he talks about the rewards that will come. And I also want to emphasize that it repeats over and over again that this is talking about in the land of Israel. In the land which God gave you, there is where your behavior determines the positives and the negatives, the blessings and the curses, because this is God's land. And when God has a special relationship with the land, uh, that's the way it has to be. Verse 23, the Lord will deliver them before you and will throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. And I'll remind us that this is the prediction or the prophecy of the people taking possession of the land of Israel after the wandering in the wilderness. And then you get to verse 25 of chapter 7. The graven images of their gods, and in English it's a small g, talking about pagan idols, you are to burn with fire. 
You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, lest you be snared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. You shall not bring an abomination into your house, and like it come under the ban. So, Rabbi, I have a question for you. Have you been to the Herodian Mansion, the place in the Jewish quarter of the old city that was discovered in the 1967 uh, rebuild of Jerusalem? Absolutely. So you are well aware that the in this mansion, which was a huge, it's like 6,000 square feet home of a wealthy family that lived in Jerusalem in the days of the New Testament, in the days of the Second Temple, they found ruins and they have them in these display cases. These were priestly families or religious families and they found these little statues of pagan gods, Canaanite gods. And what that is showing us by archaeology is the people didn't obey this command. They openly worshipped God. They openly worshipped the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But secretly, they had these little statues of false gods, just like we are guilty of not giving all of ourselves to God. There's no doubt about it. There's no doubt about that we saw uh, throughout our history uh, first of all, it was certainly a pagan land before we came into the land, and even the Jewish people lapsed into that. Right where near I live in Beit Shemesh, there's a museum, not an open museum to the public, but it's a storehouse where they have so many remains of idols, uh, pagan worship from over the many generations. And it happened, and as a result of that happening, we were exiled from the land. That's exactly why the temple was destroyed, certainly the first temple, uh, when there wasn't a commitment to the one and only God. And as the prophets describe, the people were continuously lapsing back to idol worship, the exact thing that Moses warned against in this week's portion. We get to now chapter 8, and it says, You shall remember, verse 2, all the way which the Lord your God has blessed you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart and whether you would keep his commandments or not. So, Rabbi, we need a little theology here. Scripture says often that the Lord tests us. And we know from school that a test is to demonstrate what you know. But we believe in an omniscient God who knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning. So he doesn't need to learn what's in our hearts. But he tests us so we will learn what is in our hearts. So uh, amazingly, that the, the word that's used for testing uh, actually comes from the same root as flag, raising a flag, raising a banner. And the commentators explain that when God says the word testing, it's more like challenging, more like giving us a chance to rise to the occasion and raise that flag and be great. So it's not that God doesn't know, but God knows our potential and is giving us the opportunity. And this is something uh, which is quite remarkable, the opportunity that he's giving us to rise up and be great and show the world the flag of God and spirituality through our actions. And it says in the next verse, number three, he humbled you and let you be hungry. And he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And this is a reminder that we are most obedient to the Lord when we are most dependent upon the Lord, and we are most humble before the Lord. And this phrase, man does not live by bread alone, but by 
everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord, Deuteronomy 8 verse 3, should be very familiar to our Christian audience because in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was in the wilderness and he was tempted by the devil. And chapter 4 of Matthew verse 2, after Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry and the tempter, we believe this to be Satan, the enemy of God, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones become bread. And how did Jesus answer? It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So we have Jesus quoting in Matthew 4, right here from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. And what Moses is trying to do, especially remember that there's going to be generations coming that did not have the desert experience, that did not have all of the miracles that were there, that would be living in a, in a natural world where they have to work the land and, and bring the produce from the ground. So he's reminding them uh, when they go to war, when they go to plant, remember that God is with you and anything is possible. And this is the message which God is teaching us, uh, that it's not our efforts. It's, it's, it's God who's helping us uh, accomplish this. And, and Moses wants to make sure that this generation rem remembers that and also teaches it to their children. I love in Scripture the small details. And Rabbi, you already know this. So Rabbi, I want to show you Deuteronomy 8 verse 4. It says, your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. The people have been wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, and yet their clothes did not wear out, their feet did not swell, the miracle provision of God. And this little passage reminds me of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And when they came out of the fiery furnace, it says not only were they not burned up, but it says not even their clothes smelled like fire. This is from the book of Daniel chapter 3. Not even their clothes smelled like fire, even though they'd been in the furnace. And here in Deuteronomy, wandering in the wilderness, your feet didn't swell and your clothes didn't wear out. God takes care of everything. Yeah, this is something which is a theme which is re repeated. We see it in other stories, and certainly that story uh, makes it very clear. I mean, we have to imagine, in this story in the desert, they were there for 40 years. They didn't have stores to go to to go buy new clothing. They had nowhere to turn. They just had whatever they had with them, and God was able to care for them. And that is supposed to implant inside of all of us the ability to remember that. And there's no doubt that... Uh, that carried through for generations that even helped uh, those great Jews in that story that you just quoted. As we go to Deuteronomy 8, verse 10, When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. So it really doesn't change. If we have difficulty, we should turn to the Lord. If we have blessing and abundance, we still should turn to the Lord. That's a, a, you know, we, have, we have books in our, in our tradition which talk about many people think, oh, if I only had a lot of money, then serving the Lord would be much easier. And it always points out the challenges is there. Either way, the challenge uh, when you have a lot is not to forget about the Lord. The challenge when you have little is not to be angry with the Lord or to resort to improper things to get money and to get a livelihood. The challenges are always there. And like I said before, the goal is to try to raise that flag and reach the highest of levels.
at the end of chapter 8, in the wilderness he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you, that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Verse 17, otherwise you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. When we talk about giving money to the church or the synagogue or to ministries, some people say, well, it's my money. I made it. Well, who gave you the ability to get the job, to have the skill, to make the money? Who's the source of this ultimately? And that's something, you know, it's interesting. Uh, in the United States, on your money, it says, in God we trust. And uh, I often wonder if people even notice it or, or think about it. Uh, we don't have that on our money here. I, I sort of wish we did uh, that message. Uh, because the human nature is the more we have, the more we believe in ourselves. And this is emphasized by Moses here. It's emphasized a few other times. You're going to go to the land, you'll be successful, and you'll forget about God. And that's sure enough what happens over and over again in our history. And it's such a lesson to us today. As we get into chapter 9 of Deuteronomy, hear, O Israel, it's another reminder like in chapter 6, Shema Yisrael. And we want to remember the power of the word Shema, to listen and obey, not just to listen and then decide whether or not we're going to trust the Lord. But uh, remind us, Rabbi, as we've taught in our church, there is no biblical Hebrew word for obey. It is Shema, to listen. It's, it's quite remarkable how that terminology is used over and over again and has such an important value uh, in the Bible and in our faith. Uh, so much comes from listening, from obedience, uh, from really hearing. Right? You know, hear, there's hearing and there's listening, and it's so much more than just hearing. Uh, really letting it internalize, really understanding the messages, and really uh, making decisions, life-changing decisions uh, based on that. Continuing there in chapter 9, verse 1, you are going across the Jordan today to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, great cities fortified to heaven, a great and tall people, the son of the Anakim, whom you know and who you have heard. Know therefore it is the Lord who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and he will subdue them before you so that you may drive them out quickly as the Lord has spoken to you. God's not saying you're about to take this land because you're so strong. In fact, you're not as strong as they are, but your God is stronger than the enemy is. And, you know, we started off today talking about what, what are things like in Israel. Uh, today, actually, things have turned a little bit. But I just want to remind all the listeners, if you go back to 1948, you talk about a scenario where we were outnumbered. We had armies from around the region, soldiers, and in, 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 I, I don't even know the exact percentage, uh, so beyond the few uh, Jewish refugees that came here and were fighting in the IDF. And God showed exactly this message. Certainly you go to the Six-Day War and the miracles there. And this is something which stays with us till today. Of course, if we were fighting in pure numbers, we don't have a chance. But when you have God on your side, uh, nothing, nothing is in your way. And this is what Moses wanted to remind the people, because they were going to be faced with these external enemies who were very strong and very powerful and certainly very well trained and wanted them to remember that they're fighting in God's army. It says it again in verse 4, Do not say in your heart, when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. 
but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them from before you. So we need to be reminded that not only is God the sovereign and the Lord over the Jewish people and the Jewish nation, he is the sovereign God over all nations. And what actually happens as we come into Israel is two things. First of all, the people that are living there, if they don't leave their idolatry, then they absolutely uh, are going to be under the auspices of God and and be punished for that. And this is a theme that's repeated over and over again uh, in the Bible. It is not related specifically to the Jewish people. Uh, we're, We're supposed to be a conduit to bring the word of God to the world, uh, but he is a God of all and cares for all and wants all to be spiritual. I'd like us to pause a moment in Deuteronomy and look at Proverbs 21, verse 31. The last verse of Proverbs 21, the horse is prepared for the day of the battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. That captures it. We have it, uh, King David in Psalms, uh, something which uh, certain people in the Christian faith read as well, uh, talks about, you know, Ela basusim. These people use horses, chariots, va'anachnu, but we, b'shem Hashem we fight with the name of God. And that's the difference. Are you relying on the physical or are you relying on God? And of course, using physical means. And that's the message which is being driven home. In chapter 9, verses 4, 5, and 6, God gives three reasons, or Moses, I guess, gives three reasons why God is going to protect the people. The first one we already read in verse 4 about the wickedness of these nations. God's going to judge them for their sin. Second, God's going to give Israel victory because he made a promise to the patriarchs of the land. And third, God's going to give the people a land simply as a gift of grace. It is not because of your righteousness in verse 6. The Lord your God is giving you this land for you are a stubborn people or a stiff-necked people. So God gives them the land even though they haven't earned it. He gave it to fulfill the promise he made to Abraham, repeated to Isaac, repeated to Jacob. And yet the people of Israel and all of us struggle with this idea of being stubborn or stiff-necked or how about this word? Schmaless. And also, I'll add one more thing to that list. People who have desires and personal wants and thinking about ourselves, and that enables us to be schmaless. That enables us to ignore uh, things that we should focus on and things that we should uh, be doing and messages that should resonate, and we let them slip by. I think verse 7, those first four words, at least in this English text, say it. Remember, do not forget. How the Lord was provoked by you to wrath in the wilderness. Remember and do not forget. Don't forget our past sin. Don't forget God's past forgiveness. Don't forget God's past provision. Please keep the totality of God's work in your life on your mind at all times. And the and the remember and don't forget is 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 critical because you, you can ask yourself why why that double terminology, uh, and uh, there's no doubt that re- you remember by not forgetting, meaning you have to constantly do things to make sure that it doesn't leave your mind, and that will enable to always be on the forefront. I want to do a little bit of a teaching for our listeners, Deuteronomy nine, the 
sermon or the, the speech of Moses and he's reminding the people of Israel about their repeated sins and how God forgave them but yet they had to suffer consequences and they had to go back and forth because of their overall sin and Moses tells them some stories of the past that they remember but we may not remember. I'll show you Deuteronomy 9 verse 22. He said again at Taberah and at Massah and at Kibroth Hatavah you provoked the Lord to wrath. And I promise you, Rabbi, all the people listening to Moses said, oh yeah, I remember those. Oh yeah, I remember those. We probably don't. So let me give you some references here. Taborah, the people were complaining about difficulties. That's from Numbers chapter 11. Massa, that's when the people were complaining about no water. That's Exodus 17. And Kibroth Hatavah is the people were complaining about manna. This miracle food, and that's also from Numbers chapter 11. So Moses gives them specific examples that won't be relevant to us unless we do a little Bible study. That's for sure. Uh, there's always going to be cross-referencing, and Moses is assuming that we're familiar with what has happened uh, beforehand. And again, the people for sure know what he's talking about, and his goal is to remind them of how even in the greatest of times, they are able to lapse and fail. So we come to the end of Deuteronomy chapter 9, and of course the Christian audience is familiar with what's called the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer. It's given by Jesus at the Mount of Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. Well, I bring that up because, Rabbi, some scholars call this prayer from Moses, Deuteronomy 9, 25 through 29, a beautiful prayer. Some of them call that a model prayer of the Old Testament. But there's no doubt that you're always going to see, always going to see things that come from the Bible. It's going to find itself throughout the prophets and throughout so much uh, that was written. By the way, even if you go to the today to the uh, Israeli national anthem, you'll find remnants of things that are hinted to from the Bible. Uh, it's all there and no doubt a basis. This is the basis for all. And certainly if we're hearing the words of Moses right now, there's no doubt that that's going to be used in future texts as well. So we get to Deuteronomy chapter 10 after this beautiful prayer of Moses, and it seems that the Lord answers and agrees to honor the requests of Moses. And the, he requested for forgiveness, for no more punishment, and the Lord seems to accept that, the act of repentance on behalf of the people given by Moses. And what does the Lord do? He gives the commandments again. Verse 5, Moses says, I came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark which I had made. And so the Lord wrote the tablets in verse 4. This is the second version of the Ten Commandments. And just for a little trivia, it's probably two complete sets, two tablets with ten each. It's not five and five like the cartoons make it up, but it's ten and ten, two complete copies. And they came down and they put it in the ark, just like, Rabbi, in the synagogue where you live. You have the scrolls, the Torah, in the ark. Absolutely. We have uh, the scrolls, and, and we were taught, actually, that the ark that they had back then contained both the second set of commandments, which uh, contained the Ten Commandments on the tablets, and then also contained the broken pieces of the pieces that Moses broke after uh, he saw the golden calf. Both the full set and the original set are in there inside the ark. And we today have our ark with the Torah scroll, and it certainly reminds us of the concept of the ark 
that we do hope to have in the temple. Continuing in chapter 10, you get to verse 10. Moses says, I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights like the first time. And the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was not willing to destroy you, meaning punish you for sin. Then the Lord said to me, so God speaking to Moses, Arise, proceed on your journey ahead of the people that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. And this is sad. We've talked about it on other discussions, Rabbi. Moses, you lead them to the land, and they're going in, but you're not. This is uh, something which, again, is, is, is repeated uh, throughout. You hear the anguish and the angst uh, that Moses has, but also at this point already, acceptance over God's decision. And that's also an important point for us to learn in terms of obedience and recognizing uh, that if God makes a decision, he's God and we have to accept that. I'd like us to get an explanation from you. It's a strange combination of words in English for us. Deuteronomy 10 verse 16, circumcise your heart. And of course, we know what circumcision is, but it has nothing to do with the heart. So this is a spiritual action with a specific verb. What is the lesson here? The, the concept is that we put coverings and we put blockage uh, to not allow the messages and the inspiration to penetrate our hearts. And we're being told to remove that, remove that, 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 that block that we put as human beings, and allow the natural Word of God uh, to penetrate and to make a real difference. At the end of chapter 10, a beautiful statement of prayer and praise. You shall, verse 20, fear the Lord your God. You shall serve Him and cling to Him. You shall swear by His name. He is your praise. He is your God who has done these great and awesome things for you which your eyes have seen. I think it's cool, Rabbi. Don't praise God. Understand he is your praise. Tehillah in, in the Hebrew, right? Absolutely. And we say those terminologies uh, in a few different places, even in the Yom Kippur um, uh, Day of Atonement. Uh, it's a very powerful notion that, that he himself uh, is the praise um, and very, very powerful words that Moses introduces here. It continues right next verse, which is chapter 11, verse 1. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and always keep his charge, his statutes, his ordinances, and his commandments. So Jesus was asked in Matthew 22, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said, number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. And then Jesus said, oh, by the way, you didn't ask me, but I'll tell you what the second greatest commandment is. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Rabbi, we all agree, Jews and Christians, you can't truly love people in a godly way and do commandment number two if you haven't already done commandment number one and loved God with all your heart. That's the starting point. The starting point is that connection to God. Uh, again, it uses the terminology of Hashem Elokecha. The first name of God there is a God of mercy. The second one is a God of justice. Both the things that we see as good and bad, we have to embrace and love God. And that's the starting point before you can even think about observing any of the commandments. We continued through Deuteronomy chapter 11, and you get to verse 10. For the land into which you are now entering to possess it is not like the land of Egypt from which you came, from which you came, 
where you used to sow your seed and water it with your foot like a vegetable garden, but the land in which you are about to cross to possess it, a land of hills and valleys, drinks water from the rain of heaven, a land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it, even from the beginning to the end of the year. So a couple of things, Rabbi. Number one, he's contrasting the geography. The nation of Egypt is irrigated by the overflow of the Nile River. The land of Israel, geographically, is irrigated by rain. Rain only comes from God. So there's a distinction there uh, about how the people are provided for. Absolutely, and it was set up that way. This is not an easy place to live. Uh, There aren't a lot of natural resources. There isn't a lot of water. uh, And God wanted us to be in a situation where we have to turn to him or it's dependent on our actions to get the blessing. That's the way it was set up to begin with. That's what it means to live in the land of God, is that you're dependent on him, and you turn to him, and you pray to him, and that your actions dictate what's happening on the ground. And I'll show our listeners, especially those who also happen to listen to my talk radio show in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, Deuteronomy 11, verse 12. I read it a moment ago. This is the land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord are always on it meaning always on Israel, from the beginning to the end of the year. So our friend, Rabbi Tuli Weiss, who has the organization called Israel 365, his website, Israel365.com, he started it because he studied this verse, and he said the eyes of of God are on Israel from the first day of the year to the last day of the year. And so Rabbi Tuli Weiss calls that Israel 365. And it's a powerful point in our tradition all the other countries in the world, including the United States, of course God is involved, but he delegates it, so to speak. And there's an angel that's carrying out the will of God. That creates a distance between the people and God. As opposed to Israel, where it's God directly, that creates a closeness, that creates a spiritual reality, and where his entire focus is, so to speak, in a direct fashion, bringing godliness into the country. We're getting to the end of this week's portion, Deuteronomy 11, verse 16. It's sad that we have to say it again. Beware, lest your hearts be deceived and you turn away and serve other gods and worship them, or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so there will be no rain. Moses has to keep saying, don't fall away, don't turn to other gods. It's sad that we have to be reminded so often. It's true, and I want all all the listeners to know that these verses over here in chapter 11, starting a few verses back, uh, verse 13, all the way through uh, 21, that's part of our daily Shema. We had it last week, the actual word Shema, but we read this portion, and we remind ourselves on a daily basis, a few times a day, both during the morning prayers and during the evening prayers and many before they go to sleep. We remind ourselves of this because we recognize that as human beings, we have to have that reminder. So just like in Deuteronomy 6, here we are in Deuteronomy 11, verse 18. Impress these words on your heart and your soul. Bind them on your hand and on your forehead. Teach them on, uh, to your sons when you sit down, when you walk by the road, when you lie down, when you rise up. Put them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. 
So there's the mezuzah. We talked last week about multi-generational discipleship. That's what this is saying again in verse 21. And verse 22, if you are careful to keep all the commandment which I am commanding you to do it, to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to hold fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you and you will dispossess nations greater, greater and mightier than you. Every place on which the sole of your foot shall tread shall be yours. This, if you remember the beginning of Joshua, God repeats almost similar words to Joshua, just if we are obedient, if we follow, everything will fall into place. And this is something which um, is our, our, our existence in the land of Israel is dependent on this. We have come to the end of this week's Torah portion called Ekev in Hebrew, meaning if you follow. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 12 until 11, verse 25. And as we do often, Rabbi, I ask you to sum it up for us today. I see it as the portion of reward and punishment, where God says, uh, I, here are the rewards that I promise you for obedience. Here's what's going to happen and the consequences if you don't. And it's amazing. You know, we all know that there's heaven and there's world to come and there's reward and punishment beyond this world. But God is just focusing on the here and he's saying, you will have rain, you will have military success, you will have protection, you will have crops. Uh, things will go the way you want them to go. Just follow my word. And uh, this is something which we have to remind ourselves all the time, especially for those living in Israel. But it applies to all of us, wherever we are. And that is without a doubt the theme that I see in this week's portion. We do want to thank all of you for listening. We do invite you to join us each week as we study the word of God together. Go back to the archives. This is actually episode number 40 in our study. So there's a lot of previous studies of the word that you can get in on. If you go to Facebook or Twitter and search for the Lone Star podcast, you can find out how to get the previous lessons that we brought to you. Rabbi, it's always a privilege, and I wish you and your family a Shabbat Shalom. Thank you so much. God bless to all. Thank you for joining us for the Lone Star podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new episodes are ready. Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham next time to expand your mind and encourage your soul. May the Lord bless you and draw you to himself this week.